I want to invite us to turn uh, in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which we have uh, begun uh, a series of messages through, and we're still in chapter 1. We'll be looking today at verses 17 down through verse 25. Let's hear the word of the Lord as God has given it to us through the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 1.17 For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The grass wither and the withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Of all the places the Apostle Paul visited and planted churches in the New Testament, the city of Corinth was probably the most like modern America in terms of its values and its social structure. It was a place where power, prestige, wealth, education, intelligence, sophistication, fashion, pleasure were all held in fairly high regard. It was a place where image was everything. <clears throat> the Corinthians valued looking good. They valued feeling good. They valued sounding good. Position and possessions, intelligence and eloquence brought with them a measure of popularity and a measure of power in that society. Corinth was what we might call a cool city, and the Corinthians were proud of it. And into this cool city walked this little man from the hills of northern Palestine, not very impressive in stature, not very eloquent in his speech, with a message about a Savior who had died a criminal's death on a cross for sinners and had risen from the dead. And it's no wonder that Paul was considered an uncool messenger with an uncool message in this place. And yet, as we saw at the beginning of our series, God told him not to fear, to, but to keep on speaking that message because he had people in this city. And so Paul preached the gospel. And God brought salvation. He brought transformation into people's lives such that after a year and a half, a rather large community of believers had grown in that place before Paul had to move on and leave. 
But the cool factor in Corinth did not leave with Paul. And as time passed, those in the church continued to struggle with issues of of pride and and prestige and power. And that led to, to discord and to discrimination and to some of the divisions within the body of Christ, which Paul now writes to address. I think that one of the things that the church in America is having to wake up to is just how uncool it really is to be a Christian. Throughout our history, we've kind of taken for granted that most people would say they believe the Bible, that most people would say they believe in the God of the Bible and to some degree in Jesus Christ, that most people would, would to some degree adhere to a Judeo-Christian ethic in their lives. And over the years, we have, we have settled into this comfortable idea that to be American is to be Christian. And thus we have believed our faith in general to be accepted and to be respected. But now we're finding as, as the values and the worldview of those two, two identities increasingly clash. Being a follower of Jesus is the one that will be viewed by most people as out of step with reality. As out of touch with the times. As irrational. Intolerant, ignorant, foolish, downright stupid. But we shouldn't be surprised (laughs) because that actually has always been the case. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the central tenet of the Christian faith, the faith, the very means by which we know God to be real and by which God is redeeming the world to himself and his creation is in the mind of the average person utterly foolish. It makes no sense. It is in direct opposition to the way that most people think and view the world. Call it human wisdom. Call it, as Paul does here, the wisdom of the world. But the message of the cross and the radical transformation it brings into every area of life stands in stark contrast to the way in which man, apart from God, sees and understands and responds to the world and life in it. The gospel is not just uncool. It is untenable. It is nonsensical. It is foolishness. To the mind of those who do not believe. And the pressure and the temptation in the church to conform to the ideas and the ways of the world and the culture around us. To make the gospel cool. To try to fit the message of the cross into the, into the mold of human wisdom and into the way that, that the world around us wants us to live. Actually empties the cross of its power. And contributes to the problem of this this disunity and discord in the very community of faith, the body of Christ, which Paul addresses. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand that. We need to see that the way of the cross, the message and the ministry of the, of the gospel is so counterintuitive, it is so countercultural that to embrace it makes us fools and weak in the eyes of the world. 
But for those who do embrace it, it is both the power and the wisdom of God for life and for salvation. And that's Paul's point here in this passage as he goes on to to address some of the, the divisions that are happening. He brings them back again to that very central element of what unites us as one in the body of Christ. And it's something that the world looks out and says, that is crazy. It's something that we at one point looked at and said, that is foolishness. Paul wants us to understand that. And so he shows us in this passage, the first, the paradox of the cross. And then he takes us to the perils of unbelief and lastly to the person of Christ. That's the outline we're going to follow. The paradox of the cross, the perils of unbelief, and the person of Christ, who is the wisdom and power of God. Paul begins by by pointing out the paradox of the cross. A paradox, what is a paradox? A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory proposition that when you you investigate it, when you, you finally get down to explaining it, it actually proves to be true. Boys and girls, you maybe have heard your parents say to you when when you're wanting something more, they might say, you know what, less is more. Less is more. Well, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. How is that? But actually, as as they explain it or they show you what's meant behind that, you might see that there is truth in there. G.K. Chesterton said, a paradox is a truth standing on its head and waving its legs to get our attention. I like that picture. It's an upside down truth, something we don't expect, something that we wouldn't actually believe on the, on the surface of it. And that's what Paul is saying here about the message of the cross, the truth of the gospel. In man's mind, to, to our conventional wisdom, it seems absurd. It, it, it just seems upside down. That God would appear as a a poor peasant carpenter in an unknown region. That he would submit himself to ridicule and, and rejection by unscrupulous men. That he would die a criminal's death on a cross. A punishment that was almost too taboo to talk about in civil society. And to top it off that this death would suffice to be the absolute forgiveness of all of man's sins. That just seems crazy. Foolish. And it should not surprise us when some people respond with disbelief and even disdain when they learn we are Christians. You believe that? You really believe that Jesus was God's son and that God would do something like that to his own son? You believe that you're so sinful that an innocent person has to come and die for you? You believe Jesus was really born of a virgin and he really rose from the dead and that God's spirit actually lives in you? You believe in a, a literal hell, eternal punishment? It's no wonder that the crowds who flocked to Jesus quickly dispersed when they found out what his message was really about. It's no wonder that we don't see people standing in line to come to church on Sunday because to the world, this is a temple of folly filled with fools. 
And yet, and yet, this thing that looks so foolish, this thing that makes no sense, that seems so crazy, is actually the medium and the means, the very source of life-changing, soul-transforming power from God. It is the way in which God, in his infinite wisdom and his unmatched power, has chosen and designed to bring the revelation of himself and the redemption of his people to the world and to usher in his kingdom reign in all the earth. The cross is the means by which everything, everything is radically changed. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. It changes our motivations, our sense of purpose and meaning. It changes how we view ourselves and how we view others. It changes our identity and it brings us true freedom and forgiveness. It brings true healing and hope. It brings true life and true love. And its power lies in that paradox. It's utterly unexpected. It's not how the world works. It's not where we would expect to find any of those things. The gospel, and in particular, the reality of a crucified Savior, is nothing that man would dream up. This is not the way any person would imagine being reconciled with and relating to God and to one another. It goes against human wisdom. It turns everything upside down. Or, we might say, it turns everything right side up. The significance of this paradox is no small matter. And Paul highlights this by pointing to the peril of unbelief and to the, to, the, uh, to the emptiness of human wisdom. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is dealing in a specific context here. Human wisdom, human ingenuity has made some wonderful and some God-glorifying achievements and contributions in the world and, and in society throughout all of history. <laughs> we are rightly amazed in many ways at what mankind has and does achieve. But in the context of ultimate things, eternal things, of man's relationship to God, of how we we deal with knowing God and issues of sin and justice and eternity, how we live as God created us to live, man's wisdom runs contrary <laughs> to the message of the cross. And we get a picture of this in Isaiah 29, which Missy read for us earlier and from which Paul quotes in verse 19. Back in Isaiah, God is is rebuking Israel, in a way, for their trust in their own wisdom and ways. And remember, these are, are not people outside of the church he's talking to. <laughs> these are people in the church. 
They're, they're coming to worship services. They're, they're giving their offerings. They're going to Bible studies. They're going through their religious routines week after week as if everything's all good. But God says of them, you draw near to me with their mouths, honoring me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They were saying one thing, but deep down they were believing and following another. They were not motivated by a heart for God. He says, their fear of me is commandments taught by men. In other words, they begun to rely on human wisdom. Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees who were elevating their traditions, who were taking the God's word and using it to suit their own agendas and their own purposes. In some degree, that was what was happening at Corinth. The Corinthians were saying with their lips, yes, we love Jesus and we love God. But then as we saw last week, they were, they were beginning to divide into different factions based on, on human teachings or human personalities. They were beginning to tolerate certain practices in the church simply because, well, they were widely accepted in the culture around them. Human wisdom, the ways of the world, not a heart for God, began to dictate belief and behavior in the church. And we still see that today, don't we? The church can easily rely more on the power of personality or marketing or presentation or performance to attract and to retain members without much concern for life transformation, for discipleship. The seriousness of sin and the necessity of atonement, the message of the cross, is often downplayed or dismissed in favor of a more appealing, more sensitive messaging that in the end, as Paul says here, has no transforming power. It's empty. And so Isaiah goes on to rebuke those who seek to live as if they are in control, not God, as if God does not see and know what they are doing. He says that's like, that's like the clay saying to the potter, who are you? You didn't make me. What do you know? I mean, think about that. That's, that's kind of upside down, isn't it? Imagine the potter at his wheel and he shapes and fashions this pot with great care and he sets it on his bench and the pot says, who are you? <laughs> it's an utterly silly thought. And Isaiah says it, make, it makes things upside down. And Paul says, this is still true. The Jew demands signs. They were the empiricists. They wanted evidence. Show us some miracles. Prove to us that you actually exist. Meet our needs and we will believe. Even when Jesus did miracles, they wanted more. They would only follow a Messiah who would come with conquering might and ruling power and give them victory over their earthly enemies. The Greeks, on the other hand, Paul says, they seek wisdom. They seek the divine in their philosophies and ideologies, their abilities to comprehend, to understand through their own logic and reasoning. They want to analyze and break God down into logical, understandable, and, and controllable pieces of information. In his pursuit of power and knowledge and wisdom, man seeks to make God into his own image. 
And God says, that won't work. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The cross exposes and decimates man's attempts to make God into his own image, to shape God into the, into the form and the fashion that would, would best benefit him or, or, or accord with his own understanding, to deal with God on our own terms. And the emptiness of that wisdom is seen in the fact that those who hold it, even though they do not realize, may not realize it, the end result is actually not salvation and life, but perishing and death. And Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe or the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Man seeks to understand God and his only recourse apart from God, is his own wisdom. The only lens that, that, that he can see is through is his own understanding and his own perspective, and the result is his own peril. God has not made himself known in that way. Man will never know God through his wisdom. But, Paul says, God made foolish the wisdom of the world, and he has spoken a word that is folly to those trusting in their own wisdom. But it's through that folly, through that word of the cross, the foolishness of, of what we're doing here this morning, of preaching, of proclaiming a crucified Savior that God has chosen to bring salvation, that he has chosen to make himself known, that he has ordained to save those who are his, who believe. You see, unbelief is a terminal illness. If we rely on human wisdom, if we rely on our own understanding or imagination of God, apart from how he has revealed himself to us, then the cross is simply a scandal. It is simply foolishness to us. And in our unbelief, we are confirmed in our perishing. But Paul says, to those who are called, to those who believe, to those who are being saved, no matter who they are, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, poor or rich, Educated or ignorant. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, Paul says the prescription for those who are perishing, the treatment for those trusting in their own wisdom for life, the cure we all need from the self-deception of sin, it seems like foolishness. It sounds crazy. But in reality... It is wisdom and power. And that remedy, that cure, that power is a person. It's a person, a savior, one who does something that we would never, ever, ever expect. Though being in the very nature of God, he humbles himself. He empties himself and comes down and takes on the nature of a man. He comes down as a 
servant. He enters in and he engages life with the, with the sick, with the poor, with the broken, with the despised, with the oppressed, with the outcast. He submits himself in obedience to the Lord's will, even unto suffering and death on a cross. It sounds crazy. But it's true. It's true. And think about it. Some of the best treatments and the cures we have for diseases sound crazy, don't they? (laughs) They sound foolish. We treat cancer by effectively putting a poison in our bodies that attacks and kills cells in order to get our healthy cells reproducing. We treat viruses and infections by introducing the very virus or bacteria into the body in order to to kickstart those antibodies and start fighting the disease. The surgeon goes in to repair my knee, and he does the repair by cutting away the very ligament, ligament that he is repairing. When our heart stops beating, what do we do? Take two big pads of electricity and shock it. Back into beating again. Seems foolish. (laughs) Seems backwards. It seems counterintuitive. And yet such treatments, which seem upside down, are actually what it takes to make things right side up again. And the foolishness of the cross is that Jesus, by dying conquers death for us. The foolishness of the cross is that Jesus, by bearing the the injustice and violence of man, secures justice and peace for man. The foolishness of the cross is that through his humiliation and suffering, Jesus achieves exaltation and glory for himself and for us with him. The foolishness of the cross is that by taking our sin upon himself... Jesus actually secures for us a righteousness from God and before God. Paul says it pleased God not through human wisdom, not through man's understanding of power and intelligence and achievement or merit, but through a word, through a message, through the the preaching of Christ crucified to save those who believe. No matter who they are. The foolishness of the cross is the wisdom and power of God found only in the person of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead for us and for our salvation. And friends... What we need more than anything in our lives, what every person in this world needs more than anything, cannot be known or achieved or reasoned or grabbed hold of by our own wisdom. It is wisdom and power that we receive from God in Jesus Christ. We know wisdom (laughs) by knowing Jesus. We have power by having Jesus. 
And God chooses to convey this wisdom and this power of salvation through the folly, the foolishness, the silliness of someone standing up here or out on the street or somewhere else and preaching and sharing that news, that truth. Through the heralding, the proclamation, the speaking of a message that sounds foolishness to many but is life to those who will hear. And so Paul says here's the wonderful thing in verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And therefore, guess what? We can boast in weakness. We can boast in being fools for Christ because that is where God does his work. Now, what should we make of this? How should it impact us? Well, first, it should be a cause to celebrate God's grace. When we boast in weakness, when we boast in, in the foolishness, it's not boasting in ourselves. It's boasting in what God has done. And friend, if you're here this morning and you are a believer in Christ, it's not because you were smarter or you were better or you were more spiritual or more wise or more deserving or more eloquent or more powerful than others. It's because God has called you and he has given you grace to see and understand your need for him and his mercy. He has saved you not because of anything that you have done, but as Pastor Kyle will point us to next week, simply because he's loved you and called you to himself. And so give thanks to God for his grace in allowing what is foolishness in the eyes of the world to become for you wisdom and power and life from God. And how are we to live into this wisdom and power? Well, it'd be easy for us to see this as a cause for boasting. To see this as a cause for some kind of, of, of triumphalism of the faith. We can easily read this and think, well, we are the truly wise ones. <laughs> we are the ones who truly have power. We are the called ones, and the rest of the world, they're the ones who are really fools. But brothers and sisters, the, the, the affront of the cross kills that kind of self-reliance. It kills that self-importance. It makes us to submit to God alone and his power and his grace for salvation. The wisdom and the power of Christ is lived out in the same humility, the same submission, the same servanthood, the same mindset and motivation of Jesus who is now in us and with us. We should never turn to, to mocking or putting down the unbeliever because we are only different because of the shocking, illuminating grace and power of God. Rather, we are now, as, God, as Paul says here, we are now the means by which God will reveal his wisdom and power in Christ to those who are perishing. 
We have been given this ministry, this message of the cross, of reconciliation in Christ. And in the way we live and what we say, we incarnate that to others. We're called to live in a way that is foolish in the eyes of the world. That is utterly counter to the culture around us. As we are are people of kindness, people of of mercy, people of justice, people of service, people of truth, people of love and forgiveness, as we live with compassion to those who are hurting, ministering to the sick, caring for the poor, encouraging the weak, advocating for the vulnerable, as we stand up for what is good and right and true in a way that doesn't revile those who revile us or curse those who curse us, but rather seeks to bless and to, and to reason and to, with gentleness and compassion as we pursue forgiveness and reconciliation and peace with one another in the body of Christ. When we hold our possessions loosely and give generously to those in need, when we welcome strangers, when we build friendships with sinners, when we move towards those who are totally different than we are, When we live crucified lives, when we die to self, when we're fools for Jesus, God uses that to display his wisdom and power and to bring life and light to the perishing and to sanctify us together in the truth. And so we are called to live upside down lives in the eyes of the world in order that God might transform us and others to right side up lives in his economy. We have to embrace the foolishness with confidence and with courage. We must, we must guard this treasure of the gospel in our hearts. We must not be lulled into timidity and fear and silence because it makes us look foolish in the eyes of the world. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. To the Jew and to the Gentile. We are not called to make Jesus more relevant. To make him more acceptable, more cool, more sensitive, more marketable to the world. We should not reduce the cross to just another therapeutic approach to life. We are called to proclaim Jesus and him crucified. A simple message that has profound wisdom and power beyond our imagination. And therefore, we have to know the message. (laughs) We have to be able to speak The gospel. We have to be able to articulate the message of the cross, which is is God himself came down and humbled himself and lived a perfect life and died in our place for our sin, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day that we might know eternal life and live in that life together. And if you're here today... And this sounds like foolishness to you. (laughs) 
Maybe you question the wisdom and the power of the cross. Maybe you've been hurt by the church or, or Christians acting more like sinners, more in the ways of the world than those of God. Well, friend, you're not alone. Every one of us has been there. And so I want to invite you, if that's you this morning, to ask God to open your eyes, to give you understanding, to see his wisdom, to give you his power to believe in the one who loves you, who gave himself for you, and who longs to live in and through you in the wisdom and the power of God Almighty. And as we come to this table, we are reminded of the foolishness of the cross. Jesus said, if you eat my body and drink my blood, you will have eternal life. And people looked at him and said, you're nuts. Sounds crazy. But he was speaking of a spiritual feeding, a nourishing by faith that comes by believing and taking in all the blessings and benefits of who he is and what he has done on the cross in his resurrection for us. And he calls us to this table to remind us of the source, the place, the person through whom life and wisdom and power come. And it is in him as he is in us. And as we do that, we are strengthened with power <laughs> in the knowledge of his love to go forth into the world with this crazy, foolish, good news that is the power of God for salvation. Let's pray together. Father God, Come now in the wisdom and the power of your crucified Son who rose from the dead that we might know you, that we might know your love, that we might have resurrection power to live life as you have created us and called us to live for your glory and that your power might be made perfect in our weakness that others would be drawn to you. Would you do that for us this morning, Lord? Meet us here at this place that seems like folly to many, but to us who are being saved is power and wisdom righteousness, and holiness. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.